Blog Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a lie killer, urban gorilla. I gotta be a rough neck. Free the black Panthers. FCBP. Stand for free the black Panthers. If up the black police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can lock my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here, in the bill here, up coin tail pro. Show, they got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black home, black power moves. You telling lies, you think this shit won't be televised. Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Huh? We say fuck all the system, cause we above the system. We keep ARs and pistols, shotguns that's worth the crystal. But that's for self-defense, make sure we have no issues. Be sure to leave it at the door if you have it with you. This for them freedom fighters that lost their freedom. Until they freedom, we screaming carpe diem. This for the general. King Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday. I fuck me promise. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers. And fuck the Black Police, that 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me. You can lock my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers. And fuck the Black Police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here in the bill here. Up coin tail pro. RBG, 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 RBG. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, cause that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black woman and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, foolish that don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock up, up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated, damn. Unify or die, nbpp.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no no other Black Panther Party, we are not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. And the most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police department to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated since the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indigenous servant unless you commit a crime. The 14th Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Michael Mensa, and I'll be introducing this next episode of the uh, Health Justice Seminar Series at the Lancet Commission 
on U.S. Public Policy and Health. Um, this session is titled Reparations and Health um, and will be uh, paneled by uh, Professors William Sandy Darity Jr., Ph.D., um, Distinguished Professor of Public Policy at Duke University, as well as Katie Himmelstein, um, MD, uh, Infectious Disease Fellow from Harvard Medical School, um, and will be moderated by Claudia Feagan, um, Chief Medical Officer of Cook County Health. The series intends to bring experts and activists together in order to share ideas and formulate possible solutions to these long-lasting um, uh, problems and, and issues that have um, impacted health um, and examine these issues from a social science lens. Um, I, will, I will now turn it over to uh, the moderator, Claudia Feagan, to um, continue the discourse. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. William A. Sandy Darity is a, the Samuel Du Bois uh, Cook Professor of Public Policy, African and African American Studies and Economics, and the Director of the Samuel Du Bois uh, Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. Darity's research focuses on equality by race, class, and ethnicity, schooling and the racial achievement gap, North-South theories of trade and development, skin shade, and labor market outcomes, the economics of reparations, the Atlantic slave trade, and the Industrial Revolution, the history of economics and the social psychological effects of exposure to unemployment. His work with, Kristen, with Kirsten Mullen, From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century, advances a general definition of reparations as a program of acknowledgement, redress, and closure. Acknowledgement constitutes the culpable party's admission of responsibility for the atrocity. Redress constitutes the acts of restitution, the steps taken to heal the wound, and closure constitutes an agreement by both the victims and the perpetrators the account is settled. Katie Himmelstein is the, uh, a researcher and fellow in infectious diseases at Massachusetts General Brigham as well as the co-author of a recently published Hospitals That Serve Many Black Patients Have Lower Revenues and Profits, Structural Racism in Hospital Financing in the Journal of General Internal Medicine. Dr. Hemmelstein is a member of the National Working Group of White Coats for Black Lives and a passionate advocate for, on, about issues of equity. I am Claudia M. Fegan. I am the Chief Medical Officer for Cook County Health and the National Coordinator of Physicians for a National Health Program. Uh, as well as Vice President of Health and Medicine Policy Research Group. Uh, we will each speak on the uh, subject and then we'll entertain uh, questions. So uh, we'll start with uh, Dr. Darity. Sandy. Thank you so much. Uh, and I'm really, really honored to have the opportunity to speak uh, on behalf of this Lancet Commission. Um, I'd like to begin by sketching uh, a particular and specific program of reparations that will inform the rest of the conversation that I would hope to engage in today. Uh, there are four dimensions of the reparations plan that Kirsten Mullen and I advance in our book, From Here to Equality. The first is we establish uh, criteria for eligibility. And we contend that the eligible population should consist of individuals who are black American descendants of persons enslaved in the United States. To identify that eligibility status, we propose two conditions. First, a lineage standard where 
uh, an individual would have to demonstrate that they have at least one ancestor who was enslaved in the United States of America. And second, an identity standard. So this would mean that for at least 12 years before adoption of a reparations plan or a study commission for reparations, an individual would have to self-identify as Black, Negro, African-American, or Afro-American on an official document. Uh, we propose that this is the population who should be eligible for reparations because this is the community that has borne the weight of American racism from the start of the Republic to the present moment. In addition, these are individuals who are descendants of the freedmen who were promised 40-acre land grants as restitution in the aftermath of the period of enslavement in the United States and who, in fact, received absolutely nothing from the federal government. The second condition or characteristic of a reparations plan, and this is going to be extremely relevant to the issues that we're going to explore today, is the objective of a reparations plan, which is to eliminate the racial wealth gap. The black-white chasm in wealth is the premier economic indicator of the cumulative intergenerational effects of white supremacy. This gap is driven by the racially uneven intergenerational transmission of resources. Uh, why are those, uh, those resources unevenly distributed in such a way that one community has considerably less to endow subsequent generations with? precisely because of an array of United States government policies. One of these policies I've already mentioned, which was the failure to provide the newly emancipated with the 40-acre land grants that they were promised. But at the same time, the federal government was providing one and a half million white families, including recent immigrants from Europe, with 160-acre land grants in the Western territories as the nation completed its colonial settler project. And uh, these uh, 160 acre land grants were provided under the auspices of the Homestead Act of 1862. This was the beginning point in the aftermath of slavery of the racial wealth gap. Second set of policies were associated generally with government inaction, but occasionally with complicity, associated with the 100 massacres that took place between the end of the Civil War and World War II. These were massacres in which white terrorists not only destroyed black lives, but also seized and appropriated black-owned property, furthering the racial wealth gap in the United States. In the 20th century, the federal government makes a transition from asset building via land allocation to asset building via supporting home ownership but it does so in a highly discriminatory fashion. The discriminatory dimensions of the home ownership subsidy projects include redlining as a uh, successor to restrictive covenants, and also the uh, discriminatory application of the, of the GI Bill for returning veterans from World War II uh, in such a way that uh, white home ownership was heavily promoted to the extent that it built a white middle class in the United States while black homeownership was, uh, was, was truncated and deprived. 
Uh, and then uh, the, the final set of policies that I like, I'd like to refer to are policies that emanated from approximately the early, uh, the late 1950s, early 1960s, the combination of the expansion of the federal highway system and alleged slum clearance activities. Um, these resulted in the destruction of black neighborhoods and the destruction of black business districts nationwide, and so as a consequence, reinforcing the racial wealth differential. Now, how large is this racial wealth gap today? Well, if we use the data from the 2019 Survey of Consumer Finances that's generated by the Federal Reserve, we find that the average black household has $840,900 less in net worth than the average white household. If we were to, uh, to equalize household wealth, we would also be equalizing wealth across individuals. And as a consequence, we would owe the 40 million eligible recipients of reparations approximately $350,000 apiece. This in turn would amount to a total of approximately $14 trillion, which would be the minimum amount that would be required for a reparations plan, but it would be the amount that would eliminate the racial wealth gap in, in a direct fashion. So in the discussion that follows, the effects of reparations on health outcomes will be treated as the effect of elimination of the racial wealth gap. Now, there's a third aspect of the program of reparations that Kirsten Mullen and I have advanced, which is, uh, to answer the question of who's responsible for paying this, uh, this substantial debt, and it's the federal government. States and localities cannot do it. Their total budgets amount to less than $5 trillion, while the federal government definitely has the capacity to meet a bill of any size as long as it structures the expenditure so that it minimizes the risk of inflation. And one of the things that we attempt to do in our book, From Here to Equality, is propose ways in which this can be done. The fourth and final characteristic of the program is, uh, is, is to determine exactly how the payments should be made. And we argue that it should be direct payments to the individual recipients. Uh, now, in terms of the, the whole question of the relationship between reparations and health, let me start with the observation that we now have, and this has been an important development over the course of the past uh, 25 years or so, we now have a significant emphasis on trying to understand what people refer to as the social determinants of health. And one of the critical aspects of this is an individual socioeconomic status. This typically is measured by looking at income, education, or occupational status. And for the most part, the wealth condition of households or individuals is omitted from the calculus. I would argue that it's critical to integrate the analysis of wealth differentials into our understanding of health differences because the racial wealth gap provides us with a wonderful, and perversely, but a, a wonderful index number to capture the notion of structural racism. Now, Zinzi Bailey and her co-authors uh, observed that structural racism can de be defined as the totality of ways 
in which societies foster discrimination via mutually reinforcing inequitable systems. For example, housing, education, employment, earnings, benefits, credit, uh, health care, criminal justice, uh, that in turn reinforce discriminatory beliefs, values, and distribution of resources. Now, I would like to submit that the wealth gap encapsulates these effects. It brings them together uh, in terms of a single measure that gives us a sense of the degree of disparity in American society. Research is now underway on the best way to measure structural racism, but uh, I'm going to propose now that one of the very strong ways to do so is to look at the racial wealth gap. Now, of course, there's um, an, a distinction that has to be made between causation and association, and earlier research tend to look unidirectionally at the effect of health outcomes on wealth. More recent research has reversed the causal path. Indeed, uh, some sets of studies look at past generations' wealth and its effect on the younger generation's health, and via the use of other types of longitudinal data, uh, current studies are now examining an individual's earlier wealth position and how that has influenced its health, individual's health outcomes in subsequent years. One of the most important studies of this type is one by uh, Bean, Keister, and Aronson using the panel study of income dynamics where they look at the relationship between net worth and several categories of health outcomes, self-rated health, chronic conditions, work limitations, disability risk, psychological distress, and body mass index. They find that blacks have worse outcomes across self-rated health, chronic conditions, diagnosed conditions, and disability. But they also find, and this is the important uh, dimension of their study, is that white participants have seven times greater net worth than the white respondents to the survey. They had greater home equity, greater savings, and greater levels of stocks and bonds. Now, they also do carry more debt, but they were also two times as likely to own a home. Interestingly enough, in this same study, Bean and her co-authors examine specific categories of assets and debts and their implications for health outcomes. So aggregate debt leads to worse health outcomes, although in their study they don't look at specific categories of debt. But in looking at specific categories of assets, they find, for example, that home ownership has a positive effect on health outcomes, but home equity actually has no effect. Subsequent studies have also demonstrated that higher levels of wealth reduce mortality risk. So how do we connect reparations to health? Well, the implication of what I've suggested about an appropriate reparations plan is to say, let's look at the impact of eliminating the racial wealth gap on racial health differentials or the connection between the racial wealth gap and the racial health gap. In a study that I participated in, uh, I participated in with Eugene Richardson and James, uh, James, James Johnson as as the, lead, as the lead researchers, we examined the implications of reparations 
for the effect of co on, on COVID-19 transmission um, and set up a simulation exercise in which we tried to explore what the consequences would be of having a situation in which there was no racial wealth gap in the United States. And we found that we could estimate that there would have been a 31 to 68% decline in transmission rates of COVID-19 across the entire population had we no racial wealth differential. And the last thing I'd like to mention in this context is, uh, is the fact that Katie Himmelstein has led a team in producing a study that attempts to look at the consequences of elimination of the racial wealth gap on, uh, on health outcomes that are related to the pandemic. And I, I, I assume or hope that she will talk about that study a bit in her remarks. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Darity. Um, and you are absolutely right. So I'm gonna be using slides, so I will just pull those up for folks who's reference. All right. Um, so um, as Dr. Darity referenced, um, I'm gonna be speaking a bit about the health outcomes, you know, a bit more than he has about the outcomes, health outcomes associated with reparations. And I'm also gonna be talking about two other types of uh, wealth or resource redistribution within healthcare um, that are not reparations in the sense that, that um, Dr. Darity has defined them, but are another mechanism or other mechanisms by which we need to think about redistributing resources uh, within healthcare in order to uh, promote health equity and, and justice. Um, so first, uh, this is the data from the study that Dr. Darity just referenced um, uh, on which he is a co-author, which is wonderful. Um, and we also worked with Dr. Morris and a number of other folks who are on this call um, who made really valuable contributions. So this was a study um, in which we looked at survival among middle-aged adults. Um, and you can see the data here. So uh, the blue bars are white adults and the orange or yellow bars are black adults. Um, and in the cohort that we were using, we found that as we know, black adults had poor survival as a consequence of poorer health. Um, we then modeled reparations in precisely the way Dr. Derry described them. So uh, a wealth transfer adequate to close the racial wealth gap, which we modeled in our study as, on a household le level as $800,000 per household. And what we found is that such a wealth transfer, reparations would significantly close and in some cases even eliminate the survival gap. So you can see that in survival to age 65, the gap was entirely closed and to older ages significantly attenuated. Um, so this was a modeling exercise based on, uh, on a wealth transfer equivalent to the size of the racial wealth gap that found there would be um, significant improvement in black white mortality gap. Um, so that, this was sort of the major finding of that study. And this is uh, modeling reparations as an intervention on, the ra on racialized wealth inequality. Um, but as you can see from our findings, that alone would unlikely would, would not be adequate or sufficient to fully close racial health gaps. And there's certainly a lot of policies um, in addition to reparations that we could think about. Um, and what I'd like to turn attention to now is other aspects of unequal racialized wealth uh, distribution in the United States. So in addition to the unequal wealth distribution among households and individuals, um, I think all of us who, know, who, who work in healthcare also recognize that there's unequal healthcare facilities and lower reimbursement for the care of black individuals. Um, so I'd just like to take a moment to talk about those as well. Um, 
So uh, here we have photos of two hospitals. I'm an infectious disease fellow at uh, Massachusetts General Hospital and our $400 million Lunder building is the photo on the left. Um, on the right, we see a photo of Kearney Hospital, which is another hospital here in Boston, about nine miles away. Um, and at Mass General, we, about 5% of the patients we see are black and at Kearney Hospital, over 40% of the patients are black. And I think the photos really suggest the different levels of resources um, and resource investment in the two hospitals. and um, that tracks very closely with the patients that the hospitals serve. Um, and that's because, um, as we know, although uh, segregation, formal legal, uh, de jure segregation of hospitals has been illegal for some time, and that's what was being protested um, in this photo. In fact, our hospital system uh, remains, our, our healthcare system remains highly segregated in the United States. Um, so uh, for example, in the US, about three quarters of all black infants are born in only one quarter of the hospitals. So in fact, our hospitals remain extremely segregated. Um, and so this was a study um, that, I, that I participated in where we looked at actually quantifying what is that uh, resource inequity between hospitals that predominantly serve black and Latinx patients and those that predominantly serve white patients. Um, and to do this, we looked at the top 10% of hospitals in terms of those uh, caring for black and Latinx patients. And what we found is that the capital resources, so the value of the land, the buildings, the equipment that was owned by the hospitals um, was drastically different. Um, so you can see that uh, for every dollar um, that uh, uh, in capital and resources that a white serving hospital had, um, Latinx and black serving hospitals have less than 70 cents um, for the dollar. And then uh, perhaps even more troubling, we, we then looked at new investment and found um, that, that new investment in white serving hospitals continues to be much higher um, so that this gap in, in resources um, is going to continue to grow. Um, and that gap in resources corresponded to less materials to actually provide care. So we looked at a number of capital intensive services and what you can see here is that hospitals serving black and Latinx patients were much likely, less likely rather, to have um, advanced imaging technologies like MRI and PET scan, less likely to have surgical technologies like robotic surgery, cardiac surgery and bariatric surgery and perhaps most troublingly, less likely to have emergency life-saving um, sorry, life -saving services like cardiac catheterization labs. Um, so those differences in resources mean that those facilities are less able to provide care to black patients. Um, and that's a reflection uh, it, of multiple policies, including um, sort of block grants and investments in hospitals, but also a reflection of our payment system. Um, so here uh, we looked at reimbursement for the care of black patients, um, uh, or for the care of patients, I will say, at predominantly black serving versus um, predominantly white serving hospitals. And what we see is that uh, the reimbursement for care is much lower uh, for hospitals that are predominantly serving black patients. Um, and as a consequence, those hospitals run at a deficit. They lose money on average. Um, and we can see those significant gaps here, about $500 less per patient day in reimbursement. Um, and, and that payment policy is a, a reflection of a political decision uh, to value the care of black patients less, right? And that's um, both a, a political decision to allow a large portion of our population, particularly uh, black patients and other patients of color to be uninsured. Um, and in the design of our Medicare and Medicaid program, where we have two separate programs, one Medicare that reimburses at a much higher rate um, disproportionately for white patients who are more likely to make it to survive to Medicare age and a separate program of Medicaid uh, for, for poor patients, disproportionately patients of color. Um, and so, you know, I think um, 
my hope here was both to reinforce exactly what Dr. Darity has been saying about the, the sort of significant impact and the significant possibility um, for reparations to make an impact on our racialized uh, health inequities that we see um, by closing the black-white health gap, or sorry, the black-white wealth gap in household and individual wealth. Um, and that was the finding of our, of our study. And then also just to emphasize that um, while we make those, that uh, while reparations would close the gap in individual and household wealth, there are other areas where we are failing to invest in the health of black Americans and that um, requires significant redistribution of resources uh, to ensure health equity. So I will leave it there. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> Dr. Darity has spoken uh, on the case of reparations and the wealth gap. Both are crucial for understanding the public health implications of this topic. As he pointed out, the chronicity of racism and discrimination, um, importantly, government-sanctioned discrimination, have perpetually crippled Black economic opportunities. I believe one of the major challenges we have today is the inability of many white Americans to acknowledge how they have benefited from the wealth and white privilege accrued as a result of slavery, followed by institutionalized Jim Crow, and what persists today, the ongoing racial inequality and racism. It is common for people to say, slavery was a long time ago, that was another time, and people are different, which fails to acknowledge the benefits accrued as a result and the nation's failure to acknowledge it. While a handful of state legislatures and even the U.S. Congress have issued an apology for slavery, none have gone as far as to acknowledge there is a debt to be paid as a consequence of it. Yet the concept of reparations is not foreign to the world governments or even to the United States. The Canadian government, our neighbors to the north, have acknowledged and made an effort to compensate families for their practice of removing indigenous children, or as referred to in Canada, First Nation children, from their families, and by placing them in live-in religious schools where they could be indoctrinated in Anglo-Canadian culture and deprogrammed of their indigenous culture. <laughs> the German government <clears throat> paid reparations to the families of the Nazi Holocaust. I remember my grandmother, who fled Nazi Germany in 1939, eventually received a monthly check called Wiedergutmachen, to make good again. And yes, our pious U.S. government paid reparations to Japanese Americans who were wrongfully incarcerated during World War II. <clears throat> so it is not a concept with which the government is unfamiliar. The problem is, the problem people seem to have is acknowledging it is a debt that is still owed and has not diminished with time, but continues to accrue as a result of the disparities that occurred and are ongoing. Dr. Himmelstein, in her work on the structural racism in healthcare financing, references the disparity in reimbursements uh, from Medicare and Medicaid. I want to remind you that Medicare is federally funded and federally mandated. It was the threat of loss of federal funding that resulted in the almost overnight desegregation of hospitals across this country, mostly, most notably in the South. Medicaid, on the other hand, while federally mandated, it is state funded and varies from state to state on the level of funding and the level of reimbursement provided for services delivered. Dr. Helmstein points out that Medicaid disproportionately serves people of color, while Medicare disproportionately serves white people because fewer people of color live long enough to reap the benefits of Medicare. 
As a matter of fact, it is amazing what happens to healthcare outcomes of blacks once they turn 65 and receive Medicare. While looking at, whether looking at diabetes or heart disease or renal failure, blacks on Medicare begin to improve after a few years after receiving, after turning 65 and begin to mirror their white counterparts in some of their outcomes. There is no question that healthcare outcomes are multi, multifactorial and access to appropriate healthcare is just a small piece of the problem. But as a public health issue, we must begin to address it on all strata. We have never reached a level of opportunity for people of color in this country as we have for everyone else, including immigrants. The idea that people, uh, including some people of color, believe that blacks have not achieved as much because of a lack of ambition uh, or drive or work ethic is offensive to me. There are fewer black men in medical school today than there were 50 years ago. The most striking thing to me when I became the chief medical officer for Cook County was my first clinical chairs meeting. When I looked around the room, I saw almost all white men. We are an organization that prides ourselves on taking care of everyone who comes to our door, regardless of their ability to pay. Now, that is not to say there was a single one of those chairs who didn't deserve to be there. They were all hardworking, smart, and dedicated. But you have to ask, were there no women or people of color who were just as qualified, just as driven, or just as dedicated to our mission? Had any of them been given an opportunity? Who gets to go to medical school in this country? Who gets to go to college in this country? Reparations is about acknowledging responsibility and then about acts of restitution. Dr. Doherty references Prince Edward County in Virginia that shut down all of the school system in 1959 rather than comply with the Brown versus Board of Education desegregation decision. The school board refused to reopen schools until 1964. While white students were provided with tax credits and vouchers to attend newly created white academies, no resources were provided for black students. In 2005, the state finally uh, made an effort to atone for this action by offering victims the opportunity to pursue higher education. 46 years later, what happens to a dream deferred? In this conversation about reparations, we are talking about how the United States begins to make restitution for atrocities that occurred generations ago. It is important to acknowledge, one, discrimination is ongoing, disparities persist as a result of structural inequities that exist in our society. Two, whether they acknowledge it or not, whites have benefited from the infrastructure created by free black labor. Three, the reality is to achieve equity, we are talking about redistribution of wealth, which is terrifying to people in this country. Four, we have not even mentioned the indigenous people of this country, Native Americans, or the many Latinos who have also suffered as a consequence of the structural racism upon which this country was built. Finally, there had to be an acknowledgement that slave trade and the benefits of that labor were not only accrued in the United States. There are many multinational companies that benefited in their origins as well. While we are having this conversation, it is not an issue that has not 
It is an issue that has been raised since the original promise of 40 acres and a mule following the end of the Civil War. We are unlikely to see advancement uh, in the absence of national leadership and a different tone in our discussions about equity. We are so deeply divided and white supremacy has again become quite open and blatant. Conversations about equity often trigger cries from certain segments of our society about what it will cost them. The, the ugly belief that by some, by some whites that there is, if there is equity for people of color, it is as, at a loss of stature for whites. If we cannot get past the bigoted hatred of white supremacy, we are doomed to destructive strife that threatens us all. I hope conversations like this one will help us to move to another plane. And with that, I would like to open it to uh, questions from our audience. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Please feel free to raise your hand or type in the Q&A box if you have any inquiries for the panel. Thank you. Well, Sandy, while we don't, I'm waiting for questions. To, or maybe one question has occurred. Dr. Darity, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about your reparations uh, proposal? Uh, certainly. Um, so the, the, the premise is that uh, the objective, as I said, would be to close the racial wealth gap. Uh, I uh, have invested a substantial amount of time in thinking about uh, the question of what kind of institutional structure would be required to to do this. Um, you know, Kirsten and I concluded that one of the most important things to do is to create a vehicle for the eligible recipients to elect the individuals who would be responsible for monitoring the program. Uh, we've thought about the reinstitution of something that might be the equivalent of the Freedmen's Bureau for the 21st century, so that the um, objectives of trying to improve the well-being of Black Americans could extend to other facets of Black life beyond the financial. Um, and so, uh, so we actually refer to a new agency, a new federal agency, which which we refer to as a bureau, as a nod to the Freedmen's Bureau, as something that should be instituted. Uh, we also talk about the importance of an educational dimension to a reparations project, um, particularly because there is in the present moment such an extreme opposition to telling the true story of the nation's history and past. And so as a consequence, we think that there should be a component of a reparations plan that is curricular and instructional in the same way as which such a component was introduced into the uh, Civil Liberties Act of 1988, which uh, provided reparations for Japanese Americans who were unjustly incarcerated during the course of World War II. Uh, unfortunately, 
that component of the legislation, the educational component, was defunded under uh, the Clinton administration. Uh, so I think it's really critical to have a similar type of educational component that's built into a reparations plan for black American descendants of U.S. slavery. Uh, but also there needs to be some guarantees and, insur and assurances that it would be uh, that it would be truly funded. Uh, a last comment that I'd make about the nature of the plan is given the fact that uh, any new government expenditure potentially could generate significant inflation and thereby undermine the effects of that expenditure. Uh, I, I mentioned that we suggested some ways in which you could minimize the inflation risk of a reparations plan. And there, there are two major ways in which we think this could be accomplished. The first is to spread the distribution of the payments out over a series of years. Uh, we don't want it to go beyond a decade, but you could then have a situation in which you were essentially paying out $1.4 trillion per annum instead of the $14 trillion at, at, at one time. And also, you could, uh, you could uh, create a more diverse portfolio of assets than merely a simple cash transfer if you also incorporated the possibility of providing people with annuities or trust accounts or some other form of an endowment where the money could not be spent instantly. But the key factor is that the individual recipient should have full discretion over the use of the funds that they receive. Thank you. There, there are a number of other questions. One asked about how we could take this opportunity that uh, the window that has been opened by COVID to arise, arouse the social conscious of um, this country to get people to think more about um, reparations at, at this time. Um, and I think that, um, you know, Sandy, you, you can speak to this, but it, it's uh, our, our challenge is, is is we get a lot of talk we don't necessarily get a lot of action yeah. um, at this time. Well, you know, I I actually think that the effect of the events of 2020, not only the pandemic, but of course the very visible tragic death uh, of George, George Floyd, Floyd. Yeah. Uh, and others that uh, that that came to light. You know, this this is the you know, police executions of, of unarmed blacks has been going on for a long, long time. But in 2020, I think people finally recognized or admitted that this was something that had been happening. Uh, and and I think it, it it has had a major effect on people's attitudes already. Uh, if you if you go back to the year 2000, the beginning of this millennium, there was a study that was performed by Michael Dawson and Ravana Popoff two scholars at the University of Chicago, where they surveyed Americans about their opinions on reparations. And they found at the time only 4% of white Americans endorsed monetary payments of reparations for black Americans. And then by the year 2018, the, the figure was closer to 15%. And, and now it's in the vicinity of 30%. Now, I would, I would argue that the... This, this, this amazingly hostile reaction to truth-telling in the educational system, this attack on so-called critical race theory, et cetera, 
is a recognition on the part of the other 30% of the white population that there really is a significant change afoot in terms of people's outlook and attitudes, and they're fighting back. Correct, correct. And uh, one of the questions was, why do we think that um, the, the solutions like reparation haven't gotten more traction in, in uh, public health and the medical community? Katie, would you like yeah, to? I, I, <laughs> yeah, certainly. I can, I can um, speak to that. I mean, I think some of what you were speaking about, um, Dr. Sagan, as well, about the, you know, uh, who makes up the medical community, right? And we're disproportionately white folks. We're disproportionately people with class privilege. Um, and so I think there is a resistance um, to conversations about redistribution um, in that setting. I think also, um, you know, physicians have tended to be, and other healthcare providers have tended to be very individual focused, right? Our training is to take care of the person in front of us um, and not to think about the institutions where we work, um, that sort of aspect of the superstructure or the political system in which we live. Um, and so I think that that has been, um, you know, some of the resistance. And as, as you said, there's been a lot of talk um, and not a lot of action since 2020, but I think that, um, you know, there's, there is a very significant movement um, for reparations outside of medicine and something that us, uh, you know, we as healthcare providers can certainly get on board with, um, both just as people who live in this country who, who um, participate in the civil society, but also as people who care about the health outcomes of our patients. Yeah, and I think that's a very important point in the way in which physicians engage with the healthcare delivery system and tend to be very narrowly focused on the patients or the problems in front of them instead of seeing it uh, the being part of a much larger infrastructure. You know, talking about the fact that the funding and financing is uh, has structural racism in it. And, and I look at uh, the organization that I'm a part of. And, you know, I, ca I can't travel anywhere in, in the world where I don't run into someone who hasn't heard of Cook County. And yet when I look at what we're able to offer our patients, and I like to believe we offer our patients the best care available, and yet I look at the resources of uh, other hospitals and recognize that we don't have that uh, level of funding, that we have, you know, outstanding clinicians, but the resources are not there. And who had, who who makes those resources available to those patients. And so, you know, physicians are very focused um, on the what's in front of them and not as part of the bigger structure. And I think that it requires huge change in terms of who gets to go to medical school, who gets to be in a decision-making capacity. Um, and I, I recognize that in my role as the chief medical officer for a huge system that employs a thousand physicians, there's an opportunity there, but there are not enough opportunities across the country to implement the change necessary to change the way in which we think about these problems and look at different kinds of solutions. Yeah. I, I think also, you know, one has to take into account issues concerning the training of physicians uh, and what types of beliefs are promoted in the process of their training uh, that may lead them to look at the person in front of them if they are black or white in substantially different ways. Oh, uh, yeah. absolutely. There are so many studies looking at uh, the disparity or differences in how we treat uh, pain, how we address right. the cardiac needs. Um, it's just been demonstrated again and again. Um, and it does stem from the training. And, and it, that's the person who's at the head of the bedside. You know, every time I walk into uh, the room with a uh, residents and students, 
and the patient looks up and sees me as a person in the gray coat in charge, you know, I, I can't tell you how often there's, <laughs> there's a whole change in terms of the uh, response. <laughs> so uh, we have a ways to go there. Uh, so we have a question about with the $14 trillion uh, price tag, um, do we think the government will ever consider reparations? And what can we do to begin that conversation? I think one of the things I alluded to, but Sandy, I'll leave it to you, is, is that we have to have a change in leadership. Um, there has to be political courage. Oh, absolutely. We, we have to have a different Congress, probably have to have a different president for that matter. Yes, for uh, sure. But yeah. Uh, and, and I think that that's the whole issue that surrounds building a social movement to make reparations happen. And that's why the fact that today 30% of white Americans actually do support monetary payments as reparations for black Americans is quite significant because it creates a foundation to have, uh, uh, to have the type of momentum that could lead us to a position where it would become, would be, would become a possibility, would become something realistic. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. There needs to be a change in uh, who our elected officials are. Yeah, and unfortunately, uh, I think that Barack Obama almost shut down the conversation about reparations before it could really get started um, yeah. as he entered office. Um, you know, John Conyers had a uh, bill before uh, Congress to try to um, begin th that conversation, and we, we couldn't get very far with it because um, the Obama administration thought there were other things that were more important to address um, at the time. Yeah. But I think, and the next question is also about that, is that, you know, how do we um, move to a different spot, you know, in terms of is there anything um, that we could do to eliminate the wealth gap or begin to approach that? And again, I think it requires national leadership. You know, it's, it's not that um, this is something that can be done on a city level, a county level, or a state level. It really means that we have to have uh, national leadership uh, with the political will and courage to talk about this on, on a broader scale. Yeah. To, to paraphrase our current Chief Justice, the way you eliminate the racial wealth gap is by eliminating the racial wealth gap. I don't think that there's any other uh, alternative approaches other than a direct uh, distribution of resources that will have any significant effect on, uh, on closing the racial wealth gap. Uh, you know, people frequently talk about indirect measures like uh, improving education. And of course, as an academic, I'm passionately committed to people improving their educational position, greater educational attainment. But that has very little effect on the racial wealth gap. Uh, one of the most disturbing statistics that we've come up with and the research that we've done is that we found that heads of black heads of household with a college degree have two thirds of the net worth of white heads of household who never finished high school. Uh, people frequently say that something like student debt relief will close the racial wealth gap. Um, but if you really run the numbers, you'll find that if you're looking at the gap at the household level, the average level that I've talked about, approximately $840,000, uh, eliminating, uh, eliminating student loan debt will of course have a, a tremendous effect on reducing people's anxiety 
and improving their outlook, making them healthier in terms of their mental health. Uh, but if we're thinking about closing the racial wealth gap, it would it would reduce the racial wealth gap by less than 1%. Uh, and so I think that you've got to take the, the, the bull by the horns, as they say, and be direct about trying to eliminate the racial wealth gap, because otherwise you won't. Yeah, and I think that what people um, don't understand here is um, even as uh, people of color uh, accrue uh, wealth at this point, there, there was nothing that was handed down. You know, that there's over time, uh, property was initially the thing that was handed down from family generation to generation. And that um, trying to catch up, you start from so far behind that um, it, it is not just the, you know, on an individual level, we have to look at society as a whole. You know, all of those years where Blacks were not allowed to take advantage of the GI Bill to the same extent that their white counterparts were, where we had restricted covenants and then we had redlining and the Blacks were not allowed to acquire uh, property in parts of, of society or, uh, or their town um, that might have resulted in something they could hand down to the next generation. That, that starts you, you so far behind that um, the simple uh, efforts of a single individual uh, going to school, getting a degree, and, and accruing um, doesn't begin to scratch the surface of the generations that have been deprived of the opportunities. Yeah, one of the things I mentioned was the Homestead Act of 1862 as a, a foundational moment for building white wealth uh, to the detriment of black wealth. And uh, I think that um, Trina Shanks-Williams at the University of Michigan has estimated that there are 45 million living white Americans who are continuing to be beneficiaries of the Homestead Act land patents. Um, so the, the question is, there have been many injustices done to people uh, in the past, and what would be the vehicle for reparations to go forward in promoting health equity? You know, I, I think that um, promoting health equity at, at, at this point, you know, is, is trying to ensure that we provide appropriate funding um, for the care of, of patients. And, and as long as we have this huge disparity from state to state in terms of Medicaid reimbursement and that the uh, people of color are dependent upon the health care uh, reimbursement from Medicaid. So it, it's really addressing that whole issue. You have a federally mandated program that's implemented differently. It, it's the same thing as why we were allowed to, Jim Crow was allowed to persist in some areas of the country far longer than other parts of the country. So it's beginning to address the disparities that we create with Medicaid that really go from state to state. Yeah. I, I, I would like to ask if, if uh, Katie would talk about the mechanism that links lower wealth to lower health. Uh, I'd, I'd like to mention that in the other study that I talked about where uh, an attempt was made to gauge how much the COVID-19 transmission rates would have been reduced if we had no black-white wealth gap, the underlying mechanisms are twofold. One is uh, the transmission rates are higher in the absence of a racial wealth gap because of the high density and low quality of housing 
that black Americans are exposed to relative to white Americans, but also because such a significant portion of white uh, black Americans who have employment have employment in had employment in jobs where there was a high degree of contact or exposure to the disease. And so uh, if you had reduced the racial wealth gap, you would have had a different occupational profile for black Americans and you would have had a different housing profile for black Americans. Uh, but, you know, I, Katie, I'd love to hear your thoughts about what the relationship is to overall mortality. Certainly. No, I think um, I'm, as an infectious disease doctor, I think you've named two very important mechanisms for infectious diseases, housing overcrowding and sort of lack of um, occupational flexibility, right, or the ability to remove yourself from an occupational risk. Um, so I think that that's extremely important um, in the setting of infectious diseases. I think, um, you know, wealth, as you mentioned, wealth is sort of qualitatively very different from income um, in, in providing security um, and sort of continuity, whether that's um, continuity of housing, um, continuity of, of food, stable supply of food. Um, so I think, um, you know, I think that the specific mechanisms linking wealth to health really are not well studied, but I think that all of us um, who, who care for patients and live in the world um, understand um, that, that greater flexibility, greater security, and continuous access to the resources that we need to thrive, whether that's housing, food, you know, safe places for recreation um, are, are really key inputs uh, that lead to better health. Yeah, so many of us have already recognized uh, health systems across the country. We have a division of housing at Cook County, and many health systems do, and now recognize that food insecurity is such an important part, and so screen our patients for housing and, and um, food insecurity, and actually try to provide uh, stable housing for patients who um, will benefit in terms of their health. I want to go to another question. It says, is it possible to have reparations limited to the U.S.? Uh, is, is it not essential, considering the challenges of climate change, to have international approach to address the impact of uh, colonialism? I think that's a different reparations project. By all <laughs> means, let's pursue it, but let's not pursue it at the expense of a commitment, making a commitment to a debt that's been owed for uh, more than 150 years. Uh, I would also like to say there's some fantastic comments in the chat. I've really enjoyed looking at them. Suggestions about different types of language to be used, like the social determinants of death rather than the social determinants of health. Uh, so great, great comments in the chat. So thank you. Yeah, I know. I'm going to get a, a you know, <laughs> like a little sensory overload trying to. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if someone said, if we think about, uh, you know, the next presidential election and a new presidential term in 2024, what concrete steps do we think uh, can be taken to uh, achieve, uh, potentially achieve this before uh, January of 2024? In other words, we, you know, it's, it's a litmus test, right, to have that conversation with people who are interested in, in office, in public office, about their, their thoughts on this. Yeah. I don't think it's something that we, we talk about enough. And you have to have more conversations um, so that you have people who run for office who don't feel um, obliged to even comment or have an opinion or have given any thought to it. Uh, okay. Is there a strategy or a specific plan to create policies to make this possible? Um, so what plan is politically possible in the state of the current polarization um, and post-truth? I think, 
um, you know, this is a sort of like our, our throw up our hands and say there's nothing that can be done, that things are too polarized at this point. But I think by virtue of the fact that we're having this conversation today and that there are so many people who are on uh, line to engage with this uh, is an important step forward. And that yeah, we need and, to have and, more conversations. And, and the change in attitudes, as I said, is a factor that has contributed to the polarization. So do we want to avoid having this kind of conversation and confrontation because we're afraid of polarization. I mean, the, the most extreme moment of polarization in this country was obviously the Civil War. And it was a product of the actions of, in, of individuals whose descendants are central actors in the polarization of the present moment, including the invasion of the Capitol on January 6, 2020, 2021, really, yes. We're drawing to a close, but Katie, I can't resist uh, asking you this. Uh, your proposal for redistribution of health resources is intriguing. Would universal health insurance, presumably supported by progressive taxation, suffice? And how could uh, we uh, specify the details to create better resource availability beyond health insurance and uh, healthcare facilities, institutions that would come under tighter uh, moral control? So certainly I agree. I, you know, I think a single payer system um, would be a strategy for reducing or eliminating the inequity in health reimbursement. It would not uh, eliminate the, the existing capital inequity. So what you described, Dr. Fagan, about the resources at Cook County versus the resources at neighboring hospitals, that would not go away simply by equalizing payment. So I certainly think equalizing payment is an important first step, along with a concerted policy of investment in hospitals that serve black patients um, to ensure that they have the resources they need to provide good care for their patients. Right. I always like to point out that, you know, providing access to care is just the first step, you know, to have that conversation, you know, that, 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 that single payer is a, a, a financing conduit. But uh, the bigger question is how do we provide access to who doesn't deserve the best care, right? And, and what is the quality of care that uh, we provide to everyone? So we're at the end of our time, and I want to say that this is a series of conversations we're having. Uh, if you, this was um, useful or beneficial to you, I invite you to join us again on October 20th, um, where we will have uh, a discussion about the Supreme Court assault on health. And that will be October 20th. It'll be 11 a.m. Pacific time and 2 p.m. Eastern time. And I hope that some of the folks who joined us today will come back for that conversation uh, because this is an ongoing dialogue about equity and justice and health care. So thank you very much for your participation. And uh, thank you all for uh, joining us today. Thank you. It's my great pleasure and honor to welcome all of you to the 12th Annual Isidore I. Ruby Lecture. Uh, for those of you I don't know, I'm Linda Freed, and I have the honor of serving as the Dean here at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. And today, I particularly have the honor and privilege to welcome our longtime friend and colleague, Dr. Mary Bassett, New York State's Health Commissioner, to deliver the Ben Ruby Lecture this afternoon. My colleagues, Dr. Ron Baer and Dr. David Rosner, will introduce Dr. Bassett shortly, and she'll join us then at the podium. This week is Public Health Equity Week at Columbia Mailman School, where we have been coming together and will come together all week as a community to participate in programming, to learn from experts, and to think together 
about how we can best move the needle forward to end health disparities for all populations. As a public health leader and champion for health equity, Dr. Bassett, I know, will push us today to consider our place in achieving health equity. This year, our school, <coughs> excuse me, one of the three original schools of public health in the United States, celebrates its centennial. As we begin now the second century of public health, we ask ourselves, how can we most effectively create health equity in a world of widening disparities? Columbia Mailman Center for the History and Ethics of Public Health, founded by Drs. Baer and Rosner, is addressing and always addresses this very question with its unique collaboration of historians and ethicists. The center, housed in our Department of Sociomedical Sciences, is the first and only program of its kind. The program uniquely merges historical research and big data and is a central part of our school's core curriculum. The study of history and ethics is, of course, highly relevant to our second century of public health. We cannot make effective public health decisions for the public good without the knowledge of our past history as well as an ethical rudder. We're so proud and been so much the beneficiaries of the work of the center as it builds bridges from evidence to policy and into our communities based on this knowledge. We're able to gather here today because of the generosity of the Ben Ruby family. The Ben Ruby family's gift to establish this lecture ser series has allowed us to welcome the world's leading minds at the crossroads of history, government, and ethics so to discuss public health's toughest challenges. As we learned from Dr. Mary Bassett today, we honor the late Isidore Ben Ruby, an esteemed physician who believed that history and science provide the necessary tools for people to make informed decisions on issues of health and human rights. The Ben Ruby family has been an integral part of our community for many years. Isidore Daniel Ben Ruby is an MPH graduate and friend and past student of the Center for the History and Ethics of Public Health, who was mentored by Professor Jerry Oppenheimer. He graduated with his MPH and went on to follow in the footsteps of his father and grandfather. While the Ben Ruby family couldn't be with us today, we acknowledge and are deeply grateful for their commitment to public health, to history and ethics, and its important in the future, importance in the future of society, and to the Center for History and Ethics. So I'm now thrilled to have Dr. Baer join me at the podium to introduce Dr. Bassett. Uh, hi. Uh, <laughs> good afternoon. I, I'm Ron Baer. Uh, those of you who don't know me. Uh, on behalf of my colleague David Rosner and Kavita Sivaravnakushan, uh, my colleagues in the Center for the History and Ethics of Public Health, I want to welcome you here to this 12th annual uh, Ben Ruby Lecture. Over the past years, these lectures have sought to examine critical issues that confront public health, and in doing so, we have sought to reflect on the commitments of the Center to 
to addressing the socio-political and historical context within which ethical and normative questions of justice and population well-being emerge. Are the subject of debate, and as is too often the case, remain unresolved. We have been especially concerned with how class, race, and economic inequalities shape the public's health. In 2014, Joseph Stieglitz, a Nobel laureate in economics and a professor at Columbia University, gave a lecture in which he addressed the question of inequality, how it harms our political institutions, our social fabric, and our well-being. Two years later, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse spoke of threats to our environment in a lecture titled Manufacturing Doubt, the Industry Playbook for Undermining Science and Thwarting Regulation. Next, in 2017, Paul Krugman, Nobel Prize winner of economics and New York Times columnist, posed the question, does equality have a future in America? And two years ago, before COVID imposed uh, limitations on our Ben Ruby lecture series, Arya Nair, the former director of the ACLU and founding president of the Open Society Foundation, and Jeremy Waldron, a philosopher and professor of law, posed contrasting analyses on the question of hate speech on campus and the First Amendment, an American dilemma. It is with great enthusiasm that we present today Dr. Mary Bassett, who will address the questions of reparations and the enduring challenge of black-white health disparities. Dr. Bassett's professional life has been marked by a deep commitment to public health and the challenge of persistent inequalities, both here and abroad. Prior to her appointment as New York State Commissioner of Health, she served as New York City's Commissioner of Health. She has also held positions as Director of the Francois Xavier Banu Center for Health and Human Rights at Harvard University, at, uh, at the Chan School at Harvard University. Earlier in her career, she was on the medical faculty of the University of Zimbabwe. She then went on to serve as associate director of the Rockefeller Foundation's Southern Africa office. There is much more I could say about Dr. Bassett and her distinguished career, but I think that rather than hearing from me, it's time to hear from her. So Dr. Bassett, please come to the podium. Thank you, and, uh, and, and good afternoon, everyone. It's, it's really a pleasure to be here. And I want to begin by, um, by saying how honored I am to have the opportunity to deliver the Isidore I. Ben Ruby Lecture in the History uh, and Ethics of Public Health. I'd like to thank Professor Bayer uh, for inviting me. His work and this lecture are both a tribute to the importance of history History always matters, but I can't think of a time when engaging with history was more important than it is right now. I have just learned a little bit more about the origins of this lecture, which was endowed by Dr. Guy Ben-Ruby in his honor of his father, this 
It was endowed 15 years ago. Uh, so it's a lecture for the 21st century, and I couldn't find out that much about uh, uh, the person for whom the lecture is named. But I did find a little bit about his son. Um, Dr. Ben Ruby was, and perhaps still is, a beloved faculty member and an obstetrician gynecologist. He delivered a send-off lecture for graduating medical students that elicited absolute gales of laughter, and he noted that humor was a really important learning tool, including about serious subjects, such as the one we're going to be speaking about today. Uh, so that's true, but I'm not going to be able to replicate the use of humor today. And if this remark gets a laugh, it'll probably be my only attempt at levity. The title of my talk is Ending Black-White Health Disparities, The Case for Reparations. And I gave a similar talk uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, it had the title, The Case for Reparations for African Enslavement. And at the time, I subtitled it with a question. Uh, time for public health to answer the call? I can't even quite say it correctly. And I probably should not have answered, asked this question because I knew the answer, I knew it then, and I know it now, and the answer is yes. In the United States, race, ethnicity carves the contours of people's health. With the descendants of those enslaved and the indigenous people found here by European settlers having the worst health outcomes. In a paper that I wrote with Nancy Krieger uh, when I just finished training in the mid-1980s, we noted that, quote, ever since the first crude tabulation of vital statistics in colonial America, black people have been sicker and died younger than whites. And I've repeated this fact throughout my working life for now nearly 40 years. It's a fact. But to see this fact as an accusation might not be inappropriate. In any case, it was true then, and it remains true now. As Evelyn Hammond, a historian of science, has remarked, there has never been a time when black people did not die at higher rates and at younger ages. Not a single year. And perhaps this is why this toll is considered normal. But it is not normal. And in tallying across the 20th century in the United States, the New York Times reckoned that without this racial gap, more than 8.8 .8 million African Americans would be alive today. Fundamentally, it is the magnitude of the racial gap and the lack of progress in its elimination that took me to reparations. And over the next 45 minutes or so, I may run over a little bit, I'm going to think out loud um, and talk about how I've come to see reparations as a path to better health and not a far-fetched idea. And in the end, uh, there may be more questions than answers, and I look forward to a discussion. But I hope that by linking reparations to health, a resource for well-being and prosperity, we can broaden the rationale for a national reparations program. And I hope that this, these remarks will be valuable to those of you who work in the areas of health disparities and will compel you to engage with this topic. And I'm going to thank people at the end, but I would also like to take a moment at the beginning to acknowledge people who have been thought partners to me 
as I have explored this subject, both at the FXP Center at Harvard, Drs. Natalia Linos, Dr. Jordan Lawrence, Dr. Jackie John, uh, Professor Jacqueline Baba, Dr. Magda Mataki, and also colleagues in other institutions. Dr. Sandro Galea um, approached me to write a short piece with him on reparations that was published, uh, as well as Katie Himmelstein, Jean Richardson, and they've continued to work on this, pop, uh, this topic. So my goal is to bring a public health perspective to the idea that restitution is due to people of African descent in the, in the United States and that we and people, uh, people who work in public health, like our colleagues in clinical medicine, can help bridge conversations that occur across disciplines. And also, uh, as we recognize that increasingly, uh, there have been declarations such that racism is a threat to public health, uh, not only in this city, but in many jurisdictions across the country, in New York State, at the federal level, the CDC has issued such a call. In general, these conversations have taken place uh, among economists and public policy experts, and I think that we have a role to play in having a conversation about developing proposals about how to repair and redress the impact of holding Africans and their, their descendants in bondage. So public health has been late to join the conversation about reparations. It's been kept alive mainly by activists and journalists. Within the academy, it's been explored mainly by economists, public policy scholars, philosophers, historians, and I see this as a problem. I think bringing a health perspective means that we can add more numbers to the people who are thinking and theorizing about reparations. And additionally, it can influence the way in which we conceptualize reparations and roll it out. And I think also that we in public health have a, 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 an area that we've ignored. And that's acknowledging the role that our own field has played in perpetuating racism. We've been ready to identify and decry scientific racism in clinical care. We uh, know that medical teaching founding on the idea that the black body is simply different than other bodies, that white, uh, that this, especially white bodies, these ideas have not vanished, and they include the belief in higher pain tolerance, different lung and kidney function. Uh, the idea that blacks have lower intelligence, for example, played, uh, persisted in the algorithms to calculate compensation for sports-related uh, traumatic brain injury. But public health, despite its foundational connection to social justice, has its own brutal history. And that extends beyond things like the off-sited Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis that ran until the early 1970s, ended by whistleblowers, remember, and the press, not by any internal processes of the federal government. And even more damaging, I think, has been the uncritical acceptance of the demographic triad of age, race, and sex, uh, which too often considered race as fundamental and intrinsic an aspect of a person as age or sex and allowed and even encouraged the biological and cultural explanations for racial disparities. Uh, so, you know, the UK um, acknowledged the role of class 
in its routine surveillance system, but we have never done that in the United States. I don't mean to question that we need data on racial categorizations, but public health has allowed race-based analyses uh, to result in uh, uh, conclusions that attribute gaps to failures in individuals. So it's time for us to engage in a more direct reckoning with the U.S. legacy of 400 years of slavery, the Jim Crow laws that were enacted following the end of Reconstruction, and to acknowledge that power, money, access to resources, good housing, better education, fair wages, safe workplaces, clean air, drinkable water, and healthier food, which all translate into good health, have been systematically denied to people of African descent. And this is where I need to pause for a minute and, and note that increasingly these very same resources are being denied also to people who are white. In fact, uh, are, I remain somewhat stunned. I don't know if you can make this out. This is a, a, a graph, I can't even remember where I clipped it, that shows the U.S. life expectancy uh, as compared to other wealthy nations. And it shows the trend that began in 2017, this graph begins in 2019, and accelerated and was accelerated by COVID. Um, the life expectancy in the United States is declining. At the time, the New York Times, which published these findings, they published a lot of interesting public health data, by the way. Um, they, they noted that in the U.S., uh, indigenous people, Native American Indians, now have a life expectancy following the COVID pandemic impact of 65 years. In our hemisphere, this is matched only by impoverished Haiti. So how do we read a community? Uh, in our partitioned cities, health tracks with neighborhoods, and we all know visually uh, that we can read a community by looking for litter, the sidewalk and road maintenance, the housing quality, parks, see if they're boarded up windows, uh, police cars cruising, my personal litmus test, and let's see if I can get this to fly in. Yes, it's check cashing. When you see check cashing shops, you know that you are in a poor community. And you may not be familiar with this place, or this city, but you can predict with almost certainty in our cities that this is, will be a neighborhood where black and, um, and brown people live. And then you can see um, it in the data. Uh, we don't have any guarantee that uh, any one person can have a long and healthy life, but it is a sign of structural injustice if most, if not all, house outcomes for black Americans are worse than for whites. Why should a black baby um, be any more likely to, uh, to die in its first year of life than a white baby? And as you can see, the relative gap in life expectancy and infant mortality rates has been increasing. Uh, even as overall infant mortality rates drop, the black-white gap shown there in the in the line, I don't, can you see those? Yeah, so, seen, uh, shown there with the black line, uh, shows that the relative gap has been increasing. And we saw this also uh, with the Omicron pandemic uh, last winter. Uh, as Omicron swept through, I think all of us felt that this was something that was having an effect 
that was so universal. Um, nobody had ever seen such a rapid rise in infection rates as the Omicron uh, virus proved. But it brought with it the racial disparities, the gap between blacks and whites, who are the red line there, these are Latinos, um, rose as, the, as Omicron swept through the population. Here is a uh, chart that I've used many times as New York City's health commissioner uh, with many different lab labels. New York City's sickest neighborhoods, how poverty causes ill health. In New York City, the neighborhoods, um, as you know, are racially and economically segregated, and the neighborhoods that are black and Latino are low income, have higher rates of housing and maintenance de defects, uh, lower educational attainment, higher rates of incarceration. And you can lay any number of health conditions over these neighborhoods. Uh, and this, um, in, in this slide, they are HIV infection, drug overdose, childhood asthma, and diabetes. And the same neighborhoods, you'll notice, light up, irrespective of these specific health outcomes. And the biological mechanisms that underlie these conditions are truly unrelated. So we have to look to the co common drivers. And these are also neighborhoods that were, um, were historically redlined. And these uh, are probably, these maps are better described as ones that demonstrate the impact of structural racism. And it was for this reason that I created um, Gossipin <coughs> nearly 20 years ago at the City Health Department, uh, what I called Neighborhood Health Action Centers that were designed um, to uh, address the fact that whole neighborhoods needed um, to have our, the most intensive resources of the city health department applied that we shouldn't um, see all, each condition separately, um, but should address these as issues that involve the entire community. And I'm pleased that these offices have survived, now five health commissioners, um, and they're still in place. The, the current health commissioner, Dr. Vasson, has described uh, these offices as the infrastructure of equity. So these are communities that deserve and need more resources. But I knew then, as I certainly know now, that targeting resources is not enough. The magnitude, the scope, and the scale of health interventions, including many that I have been involved in designing and delivering myself, simply are not up to the task of eliminating this map. It, it's misguided to think of these communities as, um, as just neighborhoods that are full of sick people. So I recognize that reparations will not end racism, but I believe that reparations could bring us closer to the goal to which many of us in public health have committed our life's work, and that is to end racial health inequities. So I also want to acknowledge that my interest in this is also personal. And I want to take a moment to explain how. Uh, this is a, a page um, from the Henry County Census, uh, Henry County, Virginia. Very often when I talk about refera uh, reparations, people respond with the argument that this is the past. This is old history, and they wonder why they should be asked to atone, quote, for the sin of their forefathers, and they 
see no connection between the harm of then and the realities of now. The United States has so sanitized its history that it's left out its brutality. But people who lived through this brutality and told their children of it have not forgotten. My father uh, came from Henry County, Virginia, the same area in which his ancestors were enslaved. Uh, I am named for his mother, Mary Travis, who was born in the 1890s. And my grandmother was named for her grandmother. And this first Mary Travis, my great-great-grandmother, was born in 1835, sorry, did that work? Yes. And, uh, she, um, and she was free. Uh, I, I know that she was free uh, because she was listed by name in the census. The 1860 census was the last census before the Civil War. And be, uh, until the next census in 1870, people who were enslaved were listed only by age and gender, uh, because, like livestock, uh, because counting them mattered. And remember, the South got three-fourths of a vote for every person who was enslaved, even though obviously they couldn't exercise this franchise. Uh, so they were counted, but they weren't named. And in 1870, the first census after the end of slavery, Mary Travis <laughs> appears again. Um, and now with a black husband, Riley Parker. Um, on that list that you saw back there, she's listed with a whole group of Morrises. She has, uh, maybe I tell that story somewhere else. She has, um, she has, um, she's 25 years old. Um, she has three children, including Sam Travis, who you might be able to make out there. He's three years old and he will become my father's grandfather. Uh, she had no husband. Um, she's designated a, as an M for mulatto. And on the page uh, that she appeared, there were a whole bunch of white Morrises. So a historian friend of mine explained that this likely meant that she was a consort to one of these Morrises. And, uh, and when she was free, um, she appeared in 1870 with her husband, Riley Parker. So there's a story there. I don't know the story. Um, but we think of slavery as a long time ago. But I knew my grandmother. And she grew up among people who'd been enslaved. So it's only with my generation that slavery will have left living memory. And of course, uh, even after slavery ended, it was followed by the Black Codes as Reconstruction was abandoned, and uh, more accurately, when it was betrayed. Uh, and after the Second uh, World War, my father served in the Second World War, uh, he went north uh, to pursue more education. And while at the University of Massachusetts, he met and married my mother, who was white, that's, that, that's me there um, in the picture. And my parents' marriage was illegal in the state of Virginia. This was overturned only uh, in the loving decision by the Supreme Court. The state of Virginia pursued appeals all the way to the Supreme Court. So as a child, uh, we visited my grandmother and her, my father's family. And I still to this day remember the fear I, I felt uh, because I'd been told to identify one of my father's sisters 
as my mother if we were out in public because in my childhood their marriage remained illegal. And uh, I worried that if somebody asked me the question, where is your mother, that I could get my family into trouble uh, by identifying my white mother. I, I think everybody who's African-American has stories like this. Um, and now let me turn to um, our topic today, uh, which is um, the idea of reparation, uh, reparations for the enslavement of black people. This um, is a, a long history. Um, the idea of compensation was raised even before the end of enslavement, uh, as early as the 18th century, decades before the Civil War. And in the 19th century, in the years after Reconstruction, Callie Guy House waged a national campaign that was later picked up by the Garvey movement. And more recently, the reparations have been has been has, was championed by black nationalist organizations and um, the formidable Queen Mother Moore and COBRA, the December 12th movement. Uh, they showed up in 2001 at the World Conference Against Racism in Durban uh, to call for reparations for the transatlantic slave trade and colonialism. Uh, at that time, a low-level U.S. delegation joined Israel in walking out of the conference. But for many people, uh, it was this essay by Tanahisi Coates that was published in The Atlantic in 2014 that brought the conversation about reparations into the mainstream. Uh, Tanahisi Coates is a really brilliant essayist, and he anchored his essay in individual stories that reached back into history to show the centrality of enslavement to the emergence of the United States as a global power. He showed how this legacy was continued by sub subsequent discriminatory practices, practices that plunged the black population into a category all its own. A modest hands up was always derided as an unwarranted handout, and Coates quoted Rush Lumbaugh as uh, deriding the Affordable Care Act, which I would like to believe is now settled law. Um, as an act of reparations. The American Rescue Act, uh, which allocated aid to black farmers, was also viewed in the same way. And in early 2021, um, uh, William Darity and Kristen Mullen published From Here to Equality, also pictured here, a reparations for black Americans in the 21st century. And they tackled in this book some of the truly nettlesome issues frequently raised about reparations. Who bears responsibility? How do we monetize the cost of reparations? And their thinking has greatly affected my own. And I'm going to use the framework that they proposed um, in, their, in their book to help structure this lecture as we go forward. Uh, but I recognize, of course, that they are, this is not the only framework. Uh, but as a footnote, um, uh, I, I would be inclined to include as beneficiaries all people in the United States who are of African descent, uh, whereas Darity and Mullen uh, proposed limiting uh, people of U.S. descent, people descended from people enslaved in the United States only uh, to reparations. And I'm also going to add to my conversation the work of Catherine Frank, I'm not sure whether her name is pronounced Frank or Frankie. She wrote a book uh, called titled Repair. She's um, 
She is white, a lawyer, uh, and she based her work on archival research and made a very powerful case for reparations that centers on the importance of land uh, ownership as a source of wealth. And uh, as we're going to see, uh, the bill for reparations is not small. And, uh, and Professor Frank uh, had some ideas about how we might fund reparations here. So it's fair to ask um, what I mean when I talk about reparations. And I have on this slide quoted some of the definitions of reparations that have been offered by the United Nations High Commissions for Human Rights. Uh, and they make um, the argument that, and I'm going to read a quote here, reparation programs are meant to partially redress gross systematic human rights violations, not sporadic or exceptional ones. It implies that the universe of potential beneficiaries is large, and they probably suffered various and multiple forms of abuse. Part of what needs to be redressed in, these, in the cases that are concerned here is not only a large number of individual violations, but violations that come about in systematic ways, either as a consequence of the deliberate adoption of abusive policies or as a predictable consequence of other choices. Reparations in these contexts must not only do justice to the victims, but also contribute to reestablishing essential systems of norms, including norms of justice, which are inevitably weakened during times of conflict or authoritarianism. So this really tilts the case for reparations to cases of mass atrocities, such as genocide. Uh, and in 1951, William Patterson presented in Paris a petition titled, We Charge Genocide to the United Nations on behalf of black Americans. He argued that the goal has not ever been to eliminate, at least not so far, to eliminate black people, but that group membership alone was reason enough to be killed. So he theorizing on what are worthy situations for reparations I think would benefit from public health input. Uh, there is a Lancet Commission on Reparations. Its work was disrupted by the untimely death of, of Paul Farmer. Um, but it's clear to me uh, uh, that, and, and in this I, I had conversations with Jackie Baba, who's a human rights lawyer who is at, was at Harvard with me. She's still there. Um, that atrocities based on group membership is key. And I promise always when I talk about reparations for people uh, who are descendants of enslaved Africans to mention the indigenous people of what became the United States for which for whom uh, encountering European settlers uh, resulted in genocide and land seizure. Uh, it truly uh, catastrophic. Uh, we talk about uh, the declining life expectancy of people in this country, but life expectancy has been declining in successive birth cohorts beginning in 1948 um, for uh, American Indians and Alaska Natives. But today uh, I'm focusing on people descended from um, the, uh, descendant, the descendants of enslaved Africans. So I think of reparations as something that is necessary 
when the harm that was done cannot otherwise be remedied. So there are a number of options for ongoing harms, not the least that these harms should cease. But past events are in a different category. And in this case, justice calls for compensation for nearly 250 years of African enslaved labor and a century or so of legal exclusion from full citizenship, which was often enforced by terror. Of course, it can be difficult at times to disentangle the impact of injustice, for example, the stalling of intergenerational wealth transfer due to redlining, from ongoing gentrification, housing discrimination, and so on, that have to be addressed contemporarily through policy and law. But it is important to acknowledge that there are situations where there can be restoration or reversal of the harm. And where it's still possible, these reparative actions should be taken. And in my eyes, these are not reparations. The loss of the Louisiana waterfront or Manhattan Beach, uh, these were properties where the land could still be returned. But in contrast, I think of reparations as restitution for historical harm that cannot be undone. And there's also the issue of scale. Uh, many private actors, including academic institutions, are beginning to reflect on their engagement with the use of enslaved labor. We all know that Georgetown University uh, began such an exploration. Harvard University is doing the same. Uh, Georgetown, of course, to establish itself, uh, sold 271, 72 uh, enslaved people um, down south in order to raise funds. But the scale required to match the harm inflicted by enslavement and what followed can't be addressed without the action of government. And it is on the federal government that Dougherty and Mullen place responsibility. Uh, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, um, but I think that Frank um, leaves more options for state-level action. So Dougherty and Mullen proposed this framework, ARC, um, and I, I think probably they were thinking of the famous quote that used by Martin Luther King, the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And they outline A for acknowledgement, R for redress, and C for closure. Acknowledgement is the admission of responsibility for the atrocity or atrocities um, by the culpable party, and I'm quoting Darity and Mullen on this. The admission should be accompanied by a guarantee that to make restitution uh, and uh, to not repeat it. Uh, redress is the actual restitution, typically in the form of monetary compensation. And closure means that the victimized community and the culpable party agree that the debt has been paid and that the victims will make no more group-specific claims unless some new atrocity occurs. So I'm going to begin with acknowledgement using this um, uh, framework, because clearly acknowledgement is a form of truth-telling, and it includes recognizing in public health our role in propagating scientific racism, which lent a sheen of science to white supremacy that still lingers. We permitted human experimentation, the terrible stories of Tuskegee, of um, Marion Sims, who 
operated on uh, enslaved women to perfect the repair of birth, a birth injury, vesicovaginal fistula. Uh, there's Henrietta Lacks, whose cells founded the HeLa cells, uh, who was, whose cells were used without her knowledge and consent. And of course, in, in organized medicine, and this is not uh, so much public health, um, the AMA, which was founded in 1847, apologized only in 2008 for its many decades of collusion with segregated health care and their exclusion of black physicians for over 150 years. So we continue to have a very unequal health system and we have atrocities that should be acknowledged and apologies are due. Uh, but often when we talk about um, these issues, uh, we're talking about personal racism, racism in personal health care and the interface between a provider and a, a patient. And it leaves out the ways in which this, these inequalities are structured. Uh, here is an example by um, the two Himmelsteins, uh, Gracie and Katie, that show that uh, hospitals that serve many black doctors have many fewer um, assets, including the types of equipment that are needed to offer standard of care. A recently published um, paper by them um, showed that there are also huge fiscal um, disadvantages to hospitals that serve mainly black patients. Uh, the paper calculated that equalizing reimbursement levels would have boosted black-serving hospitals' revenues by about $14 billion in 2018, or about $26 million per black-serving hospitals. So, you know, these are not a matter of um, how your doctor felt about you or whether they, how they interpreted your complaint when you saw them. Uh, even if your doctor wanted to provide you with good care, it might have been quite difficult to do so at one of these hospitals. I certainly encountered this uh, when I trained at Harlem Hospital when we didn't have a CT scanner, for example. Uh, so even if we wanted to practice standard of care, we did not have the resources to do so. And I mean, there's some amazing figures. Uh, it's amazing to me that nearly, uh, that something over 40% of, uh, of black patients who receive Medicare are, receive their services in between 10 and 15% of hospitals, which shows you how partitioned our healthcare, um, our healthcare infrastructure remains. And this is a graph that I return to often. And I was just reflecting on the fact, it took a lot of work to create this graph by Krieger and colleagues. Um, uh, and it hasn't been updated since 2002. Uh, so it shows the, um, for people, all people of color, uh, these lines on the bottom uh, are, are white people, and the separate lines are uh, quintiles of county wealth. Uh, so these are the mortality rates. So this is the quintile of whites in the highest quintile counties. And you can see here, and this is of people uh, who were people of color, and, and until quite recently, th this group was overwhelmingly people classified as black. Uh, and you can see that it was only in the early 1990s that the highest income quintile uh, of people of color matched the lowest income quintile of people classified as white. 
So these data are important. I, I think that these data can be used to, um, you know, to make the case uh, that we have a problem not only with class but also with race. And they also, um, Krieger points out, that there was a narrowing of these gaps uh, in the years that followed um, the many um, progressive legislations that uh, were part of the Great Society era. Um, so that social policy really has an impact on more premature mortality rates. These were deaths before the age of 65. And she found some pretty incredible statistics. Uh, for example, it was only in 1995 that black men achieved a stable life expectancy of 65 years. Um, and this was achieved by the white population in the 1940s, by black women in the 1950s. So Krieger, um, and, but probably the most important observation here is that the racial gap narrowed uh, during a period of progressive social policies. So uh, we have a, a lot of data that can help us acknowledge the, um, acknowledge the, um, the damage. Uh, and we also saw this during the COVID pandemic when uh, we saw much higher mortality rates. Um, and these are rate ratios. So this means that, um, that, uh, that in this age group, 35 to 44 years, uh, blacks were nine times more likely to die of COVID-19. This is based on data mainly from, from, um, from the first wave. Um, and, you know, the, this is staggering to me. I know everybody worries about, um, about case fatality rates, but I really do believe that this was driven principally by exposure. Uh, we just don't see rate ratios this high. Uh, related to the common causes of death, by that which I mean diabetes, heart disease, cancer. Um, and this had to have been driven by unequal exposure, uh, who were the frontline workers. Uh, and I don't have time to go over all this, but we got education data, and uh, this showed uh, that even when you consider education as a proxy for social class, racial differences persisted. And um, in this group, uh, who were adults 25 to 64 years of age, uh, nearly 90% of the deaths in this group due to COVID-19 would not have occurred if they had the same mortality rate as college-educated whites. So, you know, we, um, uh, we clearly have ample evidence uh, that we should acknowledge of the impact uh, going down through the the decades and centuries. And let's turn now uh, to the remedy. Um, and I'm going to talk about um, also the remedy that has been proposed by Frank. So Darity and Mullen argue, and I think convincingly, that the summary metric uh, that is the most important measure of the impact of many years of enslavement and the discriminatory treatment that followed uh, is, is the black-white wealth gap. And the most important actor is national, that is the federal government. And they assess the wealth gap as about 10 to 1 for blacks versus whites. And to eliminate this gap, the product of uncompensated labor and many generations of exclusion based on 2019 data. So the price tag has only increased since then at a cost of about 850000 per household 
it would be 10 to 12 trillion dollars. So that's a very big number. Uh, but they argue that this is the only number that will result in meaningful repair, is the elimination of this gap. So what would this do for health? Um, because I, I think it's important often to say, right, I, there's an important moral case to make that we should eliminate this wealth gap that is unfair and resulted from bad policies. But uh, it would be good to be able to point out that we would get other benefits, including benefits to health. And, uh, you know, the, we've seen this also in the, all the arguments about climate change, uh, that we also, we don't just want to save the environment. We also have many health effects related to climate change. So I think it's worth thinking about what this would do for health, what we would save in terms of all those emergency room visits and hospitalizations and premature deaths that now occur uh, among in excess among the population of African descent. These are high-cost occurrences, not only because the United States spends more money than any other country on health care. Gosh, I really should pick up the pace here. Um, so they, you know, uh, so I, I wanted to tell you a little bit about these experiments that have been done. And I, these are all thought experiments. And there are two studies, one of them which has been published uh, by Richardson and others, that showed that if we had eliminated the wealth gap, um, that we would have seen both reduced exposure to COVID in the black population, um, and we would have seen less onward transmission, right? If you have fewer infected people, you'll have less transmission. And that there would have been a reduction in infection by one-third to two-thirds, uh, which would benefit the entire population. So they use an example of what the, eliminating the wealth gap would have had on COVID. This was published in Social Science and Medicine. And another study uh, that thankfully has recently been accepted it's really hard to get this work published, I should point out to all of you, um, that this is a study based on the health and retirement study. It's of people 50 and older. And among these middle-aged adults, they modeled what would happen if, to the risk of death um, before 65 years, so that's a premature death, um, if we made the wealth distribution equal at the beginning of the study. And they found um, that, um, that the differences in wealth largely uh, accounted for the fact that there were such this, um, a much higher mortality rate among these middle-aged blacks, and that reparations, if it uh, eliminated the, the, the um, was made equal prior to entry into the study, um, the mortality gap would have been reduced by half, and if you included income, and education, it would have been entirely eliminated. Um, so then there's Frank's work. Um, and, and she does a lot of work um, based on archival research in two places, the Sea Island and Davis Bend, uh, which was a plantation owned by Jefferson Davis. I don't know how many of you remember that he was the nominal president of the Confederacy. And so she makes the case uh, that the emancipated Africans were freed rather than free. And the case that freedom is more than the absence of bondage, she reminds us um, that the request at emancipation was for land. Land was promised 
deeded to the the uh, newly freed population um, and at a stroke of a pen after the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, more than 400,000 acres of land that had been distributed to 40,000 formerly enslaved people was returned to its its white owners. And, uh, you know, the um, the she she points out that the newly freed were like, you know, people on an island told that they were free to go with no boat. Um, so these, uh, the newly uh, freed were really left with no choice but returning to surf-like conditions of sharecrop um, la um, labor. And she uh, makes the case that what's due is community reinvestment, not only individual household cash handouts, which the Dowardies proposed, and she points out that at the very same time uh, that land was being taken back from the newly emancipated uh, enslaved people, uh, the Homestead Act made literally thousands of acres, 160 acre tracts available to uh, mostly white European, many of them immigrants, uh, um, who uh, settled these lands in the Midwest. It's estimated that uh, over 90 million Americans alive today are descendants of these homesteaders. And it's true that some blacks also got land. Um, some blacks managed to hold on to their land. Uh, but uh, we can't forget that the kind of terror uh, that was wreaked upon black wealth. Um, now all of us know about the Tulsa Race Massacre, uh, but many of us don't know the, um, the cost that was paid by people who sought to retain their land uh, in the U.S. South with the rise of the Ku Klux Klan and so on. Uh, so Frank's idea um, is to tax the baby boner, bo boomer inheritance. Um, uh, it's estimated, she estimated that $59 trillion is going to be transferred from uh, 93 million estates between 2007 and 2061, and she argues that the beneficiaries, um, the generation of baby boomers, should renounce some of this racially tainted land and fortune and redirect the bounty to the cause of racial justice in our communities. And obviously, inheritance tax is mainly a, um, mainly a, a federal issue, but there are states that do do um, uh, uh, in, in estate and inheritance tax. Um, and there has been a new bill. It was voted out of Congress for the first time, out of committee in the House of Representatives for the first time, H.R. 40, a reference to 40 acres and a mule. Uh, and it is, um, you know, it, it is now at least out of committee for the first time since it was introduced 30 years ago. It hasn't gone to the House floor. Um, and, you know, obviously the main issue, I hope that I have served to convince you that there is a price to pay for the history um, that we, that I have recounted and, and that we're paying a price in premature death and, and excess mortality, uh, which seems to be a price that's being paid by the United States population across the board. Uh, but obviously, uh, creating the political will for reparations is a big challenge. And in the Caribbean, uh, reparations is a state project of CARICOM, which is their um, Caribbean union. They have a commission. Uh, they have entered into agreements for reparations from the United Kingdom, for example. 
And, the, you know, the, there's not much support for reparations among the white population of the United States, uh, but this proportion has risen. It used to be 4%. Now it's uh, about 30%. And, of course, we have, uh, you know, the, um, the idea of reparations at local level spreading across the United States. Um, but, the, you know, there are also other strategies that are not directed only to black people. Uh, and I've listed some of them here. There's baby bonds, which would give every baby, it was invented first in the UK, give every baby sort of a bond at birth and, and give the amount according to income, which would tilt it towards people of color who tend, who tend to be poor. Um, obviously, Medicare uh, for all uh, would be an equity um, uh, a pro-equity maneuver, ideas like basic income. Uh, what Frank wanted to do was land trusts. And I put this next slide in just to remind myself to mention community land trusts, which are, exist around the United States. Uh, she really believes that rather than individual cash um, payments to households or individuals proposed by Matt Darity and Mullen, that there should be an effort to secure wealth um, by creating trusts that are held in collective uh, uh, hands. Um, and, and I think in public health, you know, we are interested in collective, um, in the collective. We think about the population, not just individuals. And there's been a price to pay by, in terms of institutional costs, as I've mentioned uh, when talking about hospitals. Uh, so we, 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 I think we, uh, you know, this is an interesting idea. Frank doesn't think that it's wrong to give individuals or households money, and the Darity Mullen um, team, uh, they happen to be married, uh, don't think it's wrong to talk about collective compensation, but they think no form of compensation uh, should be done that doesn't include individual payments. And then there's closure, and I, I don't really know whether we are ready to even begin to explore closure. Uh, last year, uh, more people died after encounters with police than in uh, any year in history since we've gathered these data, more than the year uh, of 2020 when George Floyd was murdered. And they continue to represent disproportionately black, disproportionately black men who are also less likely to be armed, less likely to be threatening. And of course, there's the problem of mass incarceration. So I end. Um, with a reflection on the arc of our history. Uh, this graphic by a Baltimore artist uh, should remind us all uh, how much of the history, he uses the, the uh, traffic light colors to remind us that the light only turned green in 1954 for people of African descent. And some people, this is Brown versus the Board of Education that made school desegregation that made uh, school segregation the law of the land. Um, some people would say it should be later with the Voting Rights Act and the, and the uh, Civil Rights Act. And of course, as I've been arguing, it isn't really green yet. Um, but I, I will end um, with the words of Martin Luther King um, that the arc of the universe is long, uh, but bends towards justice. Reparations won't fix racism but a less impoverished black America where the historical origins of its burdens have been acknowledged would be better placed to protect our future. 
as a nation, the future of all Americans. And I'll just thank again the same people. I also added my daughter uh, who embraced reparations as a strategy far before I did. And I'd be happy if there's still some time as I've run over 